You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Ragtime, released December 25th, Christmas 1981. It was written by Michael Weller, based on the novel by E.L. Doctorow, directed by Milos Forman, and released by Paramount Pictures. Author E.L. Doctorow's novel Ragtime was published in 1975 and won the National Book Critics Award. Dino De Laurentiis snatched up the film rights immediately for a quarter million dollars, but the story's path to the screen was a tumultuous one. It originally landed at Columbia, but was dumped from the slate when studio president David Begelman was forcibly removed from office in the wake of an embezzlement scandal. Apparently, Uncle Ben actor Cliff Robertson was sitting down to do his taxes and found a 1099 from Columbia for $10,000 he'd never been paid. When he reported it, the FBI determined that Begelman had forged the check, as well as a number of other previously undetected checks, amounting to around $75,000. That's it? That's it, right? That seems crazy. Like, maybe like, he only got caught on one branch of this scheme. Yeah. But, I mean, 75000 in the late 70s was more money, but still, yeah. crazy. Come on, rip off Uncle Ben for more money. When Ragtime was reattempted at Paramount, Robert Altman was attached with an intention to direct the film as two three-hour halves. Author Doctorow and Altman were similarly disappointed with the first draft from former Altman collaborator Joan Tewksbury, and the screenwriter was replaced in her role. Dino De Laurentiis and Altman clashed over the final cut of Buffalo Bill and the Indians, or Sitting Bull's history lesson, and ultimately Altman was fired off of Ragtime in pre-production. Milos Forman was brought on, and tried to attach the original author, Doctorow, to pen the screenplay, but Doctorow had hopes for a 10-part miniseries and presented a nearly 1,000-page draft. Whew. Doctorow and her... It's called my book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Doctorow and his screenplay were ultimately turned away. Robert ultimately, ultimately. <laughs> no, he was gone. <laughs> you got what I was going for, right? <laughs> Get out. Stop. <laughs> Foreman himself tightened the story by excising the inclusion of many additional historical figures like Ford and Freud, who all played parts in the events of the book. A lengthy sequence starring Marie-Claire Costello as Emma Goldman made it as far as being shot and edited before the character was dropped from the film entirely. Casting the lead roles was a bit of a roller coaster, with musicians Mick Jagger, Bob Dylan, and Bruce Springsteen all vying for the younger brother role that eventually went to Brad Dourif. Mm. Oh, interesting. Would they be too old by this point? I don't know. I mean, they're too old for most of the things yeah. they do. Yeah. Both Red Fox and Muhammad Ali were in consideration for Cole House Walker, and O.J. Simpson petitioned hard for the part. Hmm. I feel like that would have ruined this movie. Yeah. Despite negligible screen time, Harvey Keitel and John Belushi were both considered for the part of Harry Houdini, who gets maybe three or four shots and zero lines in the film. I don't know if John Belushi would have been a good choice. No, it's a strange one. I mean, this is right after Continental Divide, so mm. he would have been at his thinnest. Still a weird choice. Meryl Streep was set for a lead role, presumably Evie, but possibly Mother, and she had to step away when she became pregnant, though Mary Steenburgen, who remains in the Mother role, was also pregnant during production. 
Jack Nicholson was locked in for a major role, but for whatever reason backed out mere weeks from the start of production. So to make up for the loss of star power, director Foreman urged James Cagney out of a 20-year retirement to play the part of Rhinelander Waldo against the advice of his own doctors. <laughs> it's like, it's like you don't need to listen to them. It's like, who are you going to trust? This guy trying to make a quick buck because Jack Nicholson quit on us or mm. your doctors? Was Jack Nicholson going to play the Rhinelander Waldo character? Depending on your source, Nicholson was due to play either Thaw or the father character. But yeah. Thaw is only in the first half of the movie and the father is a prudish nerd the whole time. So both seem like terrible fits for Jack Nicholson. Yeah, but I, I think it would have been fun to have Thaw just that short bit i mean like like almost like his easier rider yeah role like yeah that makes where sense he just has to play a crazy guy for a yeah, short time just for a little bit the film wound up costing 28.3 million and only made 21.2 in the box office but it racked up a pile of oscar nominations supporting actor for rollins supporting actress for mcgovern screenplay for weller art direction cinematography costume design music and song for randy newman but it lost all of them the same novel was more recently adapted into a popular musical and led the 1998 Tony nominations with wins for Best Book of a Musical and Best Original Score. The film starts with a couple dancing on stage. The woman, played by Elizabeth McGovern, is Evelyn Nesbitt, or Evie, as she will be referred to in the film. Do you guys recall the last Nesbitt we mentioned on the show? I don't. Mm, I, my, my first instinct is always Toy Story. <laughs> Which we mentioned in that episode. <laughs> What episode did we mention Toy Story in? That's the question at hand. Arthur. Uh, when Bitterman's dropping her off and she's like, hello, Mrs. Nesbitt. Why, hello, Mrs. Nesbitt. Will that be all, man? I think so. And that's where we mentioned Buzz Lightyear's alter ego from Toy Story. <laughs> right. You see the hat? I am Mrs. Nesbitt. We cut from there to Howard R. Rollins Jr. as African-American ragtime pianist Colehouse Walker playing the organ for a newsreel at a silent movie house reporting on an unprecedented heat wave, which in a film narrative tends to beget violence. But the heat isn't really played up for the rest of the film. Right. The next headline announces Booker T. Washington's historic meal with Roosevelt at the White House, another headline about Houdini embarking on a nationwide tour, and the unveiling of a nude statue being installed on Madison Square Tower. We see newsreel footage of a man we'll come to know as Harry Thaw shouting angrily into camera about the statue. We cut to a fancy dinner party and a banquet hall full of tuxedoed men with Roman crowns of leaves. Outside, we see Thaw knock at the door demanding a visit with Stanford White. When a butler opens the door to retrieve his business card, a crowd of men storm into the building. Another butler notices the men ascending a spiral staircase to the banquet hall and locks the door to slow them down. He informs Mr. White of their arrival. White and Thaw speak to each other through the locked door, and Thaw demands the removal of the nude statue of his now wife. In fact, he's brought men here with tools today to remove the statue himself. When White refuses to open the door for them, Thaw and his men decide to bash it down. It takes a few tries, but they force their way in. I, I really wanted the scene just to go, the, just them. They can't get it open. <laughs> they just smash into it, and you just hear the thump. Because that's what happens like, first. Can you call an ambulance? <laughs> I think he's dead. Well, because even before that, like he's like, you know who it is. It's Harry Thaw. <laughs> In case you didn't know. I know sometimes I suspect people recognize my voice and they don't. Thaw seems to think he's stumbled upon something secret and illegal happening here. He threatens to share this information with the police, and White points out Rhinelander Waldo, the police commissioner, among the guests. Waldo here is being played by the freshly unretired James Cagney. 
Thaw tries to save face, claiming some intelligence before racing out of the building. The next day, we cut to the home of the film's central family, where Brad Dorif, credited only as younger brother, sits at a dinner table writing in a journal. Now, this bothered me so much because I was like halfway through the movie and I was like, I have been paying such close attention. I have not heard their names once. Right. I'm just no. going to look it up. And I look it up <laughs> and the characters are named Mother, Father, and Little Brother. And yeah. It's like, God damn it. <laughs> so I'm going to call Dorif Dorif. I'm going to call Steenburgen Steenburgen. And the father is just father because I didn't know Jim Oslo, the actor. Well, I didn't realize that Mary Steenburgen was his sister and this was his brother-in-law because they're credited as father and mother. I thought they were his father and mother. Oh, that's very weird. Yeah. <laughs> How did Steenburgen give birth to Brad Dorif? Okay, well, first of all, Mary Steenburgen looks almost exactly the same now that's as true. she did in Ragtime. Yeah. If she can be John C. Riley's mom, then she could be Brad Dorif's mom. <laughs> exactly. I was talking to Jess about this because she always plays the the mother of man children, like <laughs> like in Elf or in Clifford or like. All these movies where she gets saddled with a comedian playing an adult child. Yeah. <laughs> Usually she's like a stepmom or an aunt, but she's very motherly. <laughs> she's always so sweet with them, too. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, she's endlessly patient with these weirdos. Dorif's family crowd in around him at the table, and he stands to pull back his sister's chair for her to sit down. Sister is being played by Mary Steenburgen and credited as mother, though my talk-to-text prefers Steam Virgin. <laughs> so I might say that a few Whoa. times. Steam Virgin's husband, credited as father, announces to the table that his factory had its best quarter ever on account of some fireworks products developed by his brother-in-law Dorif. Father admits that he didn't expect much from Dorif, and he's delighted to have been proven wrong. He invites his brother-in-law to say grace, but it's interrupted by the screaming of Bridget, a maid outside. She's stumbled upon an African-American infant abandoned in their garden. Steam Virgin scoops up the child and asks her husband to call for Dr. Muller. The doctor confirms the infant is healthy, and shortly after, the police arrive with the baby's mother in custody. She was found hiding in a cellar blocks away. She won't say a word, not even enough to confirm the child is hers. The police order Dr. Muller to examine the potential mother, and he confirms the allegation. The inspector suspects the mother will be sent to prison for eight months and quickly become pregnant with another child. Steenburgen is not comfortable with this prediction and asks the inspector if they can house the woman here rather than doom her to prison. Would it make any difference in her case if we were to take her in? Temporarily, of course. Her husband is quick to dismiss the suggestion, but she pulls him aside and straightens him out, as women are wont to do. <laughs> it's like, hey, let's not be terrible for a second. <laughs> we cut to Thaw's residence, where he informs his attorneys that his wife, Evie, wants the statue taken down, but they reluctantly inform him that they have no power to force its removal. I'm Harry K. Thaw of Pittsburgh. I've got my reputation to think about. I'm not having my wife on public display. They promise to do everything they can within the law. Which is another way of saying we're not going to do anything. Yeah. We cut to a musical performance at Madison Square Garden sponsored by Piper Heidsick Champagne. The man on stage is singing about loving about a million girls. When Stanford White arrives to the performance mid-song, Thaw follows him to his table. White is so distracted by the dancers that he doesn't see Thaw's gun until it's too late. Thaw plugs him once in the back of the head, and Evie is set to screaming. The music takes surprisingly long to cease, yeah. and Thaw surrenders himself to the authorities immediately. In this case, the authorities are led by a policeman played by John Ratzenberger. Yeah, I did not expect, like, the full four friends treatment here right. for this scene. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Already, we're, we're really moving. 
A doctor is summoned to attend to White with a gaping hole in his skull. <laughs> I don't think you're going to be able to fix this guy. I mean, I know bullets didn't work as great back then, <laughs> but still, I can I can see parts of this man I shouldn't be able to see. Dorif notices Evie chasing after her husband and finds himself inappropriately infatuated considering the situation. Like, he doesn't even notice that someone just got shot here. Yeah. He's like, what a gorgeous woman. It's like, oh man, her husband's going away for a long time. Now's my shot. <laughs> We cut back to more newsreel footage accompanied by music from Cole House. We see headlines about J.P. Morgan, President Roosevelt, Ellis Island immigrants, and Henry Ford's motor car factory. We see Vice President Fairbanks giving a speech from the back of a train and Harry Houdini strung up in a straitjacket multiple floors off the ground. Then, a headline about Thaw's mother being shipped in from Europe to oversee her son's trial for murder. Behind doors, Evie is pressed to tell the story of her relationship with Thaw. She claims he kept her captive and struck her with a whip. It's made clear in this conversation that she dated Stanford White before Thaw, and that fueled Thaw's hatred for the statue. The attorneys assume that she means Stanford White whipped her. Uh, oh, no, no, no. No, no, Stanny, Stanny would never do anything like this. He was lovely, lovely man. He, he admired me. Thaw's mother denies all the allegations Evie is making. And the woman playing Thaw's mother here is actually the wife of the man interrogating her. The, the, the two people were actually married. Like the actors. The actors okay. were married, yeah. <laughs> we learn here that Thaw's attorneys intend to prove the man's innocence by reason of insanity, but Mrs. Thaw has too much pride to even pretend her son is crazy and refuses the defense. All right, Mrs. Thaw. That's fine. Your son will be convicted of murder in the first degree. He will be executed accordingly. And if that's what you've hired me to accomplish, I'll be very happy to oblige. Mrs. Thaw is excused from the room, and Evie is informed that the family is prepared to offer her a million dollars to testify in such a way that Thaw is not executed. We cut right to the courtroom, where she attributes the whippings to Stanford White and not her husband. Evie claims she shared this information about Stanford White whipping her with her husband on the very night of the murder. Outside the courthouse later, Dorif pulls a follow-that-car on a horse-drawn carriage that he could easily have kept up with on foot. They come to a roadblock caused by a dead horse in the street, and Evie abandons her vehicle. She's distracted by a man who cuts people's silhouettes out of paper, played by Mandy Patinkin. He offers to cut out Evie's face for her. And this character is named Tate in the credits, and his wife is named Mame, which are the Yiddish words for father and mother. <laughs> I don't think they ever actually say. I don't think they do either. Yeah, so I tend aren't really their names. Yeah, I just call them. I call them Patinkin and Drescher because yeah. they're played by Mandy Patinkin and, and Fran Drescher. Evie notices the man has a small girl with him who is leashed to his leg with a rope. As he cuts the paper, he tells her it's to keep his child from being kidnapped. Patinkin is interrupted in his work by a heavier gentleman who whispers something in his ear, and he gets very angry. He shouts the heavy man away, but then gives Evie the daughter and leash so he can attend to some personal business. He steps down the street to a closed storefront where he catches his wife cheating on him with another man. I, I really love, like, he peeks in the window and he just goes, all right. He's Time to break this window open. <laughs> he just grabs a frying pan off a thing and just smashes through the And window. the whole neighborhood is, like, against them already because there's women upstairs that are like, they're in here, like, pointing yeah, down yeah. at the yeah. door. Patinkin tosses the man into the street, and the crowd spit on and condemn the man's wife, played by Fran Drescher. Patinkin goes right to their apartment and tosses all her property out the window. This whole time, Dorif is sneaking up behind Evie, working up the courage to speak with her, seemingly unaware again of the violence that has captured the attention of the entire neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, he, he doesn't know how to read the room. Yeah. 
He definitely has tunnel vision for Evie. Patinkin comes back downstairs and throws his wife into the street. The crowd grips him from every angle to hold him back. When he finally breaks free of their grasp, he turns to face his wife and tears his shirt. Do you guys remember the last time we saw a Jewish character tear their shirt to indicate the metaphorical death of a family member? Uh, the jazz singer? That's right. That's where I was going. We cut to the interior of a nightclub during the day. They're auditioning pianists, and Cole House Walker sits down at the instrument. We cut from his audition to a trolley car rolling down the tracks and Patinkin with his daughter on board. They stop outside a toy store, and Patinkin asks his daughter for a book he gifted her. They need money, and he intends to sell it, but promises to replace it. Inside, we see its flip book with an animation dancing along its pages. The shop owner is intrigued and offers Patinkin $4 to exclusive rights to these flip books and 40 cents for each one he can sell. We cut right to Patinkin and his daughter having a fancy meal together because this is a great deal for them. Back at the same nightclub, Cole House is now performing on stage, having gotten the job as the leader of the Clef Club Band. As he expertly plays, he smiles and winks to the audience. The next day, Evie returns to the same city block in search of the man who cuts silhouettes, but finds his apartment empty. She's followed inside by Brad Dorif, who still hasn't said a word to her. When he appears behind her in the empty room, she's frozen in fear. He assures her he's not dangerous and presents his business card as proof he's a humble fireworks salesman. His backstory is so nerdy that she believes it. She asks why he followed her here, and he admits that he'd like to escort her to an event of some sort, but he hasn't decided what yet. She tries to hand him his business card back. Please keep it. I have more. Unclear if the concept of business cards was new at the time, but it made me laugh that he assumed she was trying to spare him the card. We just watched Harvey recently, and there's a scene where he hands a man his business card and then helpfully informs him, If you happen to lose the card, don't worry, I have plenty more. Yeah. Which is kind of the same joke. Mr. Dowd. <laughs> Elwood P. Evie asks Dorif if they can go on a date now, and he's delighted to find her so receptive. It's weird because she, like, came here to ask a different guy out, and she's like, oh, there's another person here. I guess I'll go on a date with him. Right. Uh, Elizabeth McGovern is the cutest. She really is. Like, most amazing. Like, she's completely insane in this movie. <laughs> yeah. But she's totally adorable the whole time. Like, every time she smiles, I was like, she's got, like, this, like, Rachel Vice and Drew Barrymore kind of, like, combo of just cuteness. So... Escort me. Something. <laughs> we cut back to Steam Virgin, where the family have given up waiting for Dorif to attend lunch, and they begin their meal without him. Apparently he's been gone for three days now, and they still wait for him at every meal. They pause to say grace, and again it's interrupted, this time by a ring at the doorbell. Father answers, and it's Cole House Walker Jr. at the porch. He says he's here looking for a woman of color named Sarah. He asks Father to convey the message that he'd like to speak with her. Father delivers the message and advises Sarah that Cole House is waiting at the back door to speak with her. Sarah doesn't want to talk to the man, and by the time Father gets downstairs, he finds Cole House inside already, holding the baby. We learn quickly that he is the father of the child. Father, <laughs> different father, brings word that Sarah doesn't want to talk, and Cole House promises to return later. We cut now to the verdict of the trial, and the jury concludes by reason of insanity that Thaw is not guilty. Thought is offended by the decision instead of being happy not to be executed. The judge orders him to an asylum for the criminally insane. As a final statement, Thaw can only deny the charges of insanity and insists that it is everyone else who is crazy. He says he deserves congratulations for killing this monster that drugged and whipped a 16-year-old girl. Thaw keeps repeating that she was 16. She was 16 years old! And the line reminds me of the father from Endless Love who got dubbed over with the number 15 every time he says yeah. it. Yeah. God damn it! 
it. That's not fair. The girl is 15 years old. Thaw continues arguing with an empty courtroom as Evie is loaded into a carriage outside. She's rushed away to a party where the press take photos of her in front of an ice sculpture of the same nude statue her husband was trying to get taken down. So clearly she never gave a shit about it. No. Even no. though he made it seem like it was her problem. She's even like trying to mimic the pose of the statue for the photographs. She sits at a table with a whole team of attorneys and a man who I'm fairly sure was the one singing about loving a million girls earlier yep. is sitting at the table with them. And this is like her talent manager, basically. Yeah. Uh, I don't know when this subplot started. Yeah. Because because first, when the verdict is read, uh, her talent manager is super excited. Yeah. Like. Because it's like, it's going to, it's great PR. Yeah, I guess. But this uh, is Donald O'Connor playing this part. The the manager? The manager, yeah. Oh, I thought it was uh, Zach Norman. I'm not talking about the guy that's talking the most. I'm talking about oh. the one who was singing at the beginning. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I could love about a million girls. They seem to be here preparing to help her manage her money, but she's too drunk to keep track of their advice or even their names. At home later, she's surprised by Dorif, who asks about the men she spent the evening with. He asks their names so he can research them himself, and they are quickly making out on the couch. All my clothes went away. <laughs> the Thaw family attorneys intrude on this moment and present Evie with a contract offering her a mere $25,000 in place of the agreed upon million dollars. It turns out that by engaging in adultery here with Dorif, she has invalidated the larger payday and doesn't want to bother fighting them in court. Has she committed adultery yet? All she did was show her boobs and vag to a guy. I mean, there's a statue of that in the town square. I don't think it actually matters what she has done or not done. They're going to say. She has a group of men that will say this is what she's done. But but just her her line of, has anybody got a pen? Yeah. (laughs) She signs the deal in exchange for $25,000 in cash delivered right then and there. Dorif invites Evie home to meet his family and possibly introduce her to their attorneys in case they can change this deal. We cut to his home where Dorif is clearing Evie's place because she didn't show up for the family dinner. Father demands an explanation, but Dorif is annoyed and rings for the first course to be brought out. Steenburgen rises to answer a ringing at the door, and it's Colehouse Walker Jr. again, here to see Sarah. He brought flowers this time, and Steenburgen agrees to deliver them. Suddenly, piano music is emanating from the next room. Father is offended to find this man playing his instrument uninvited. Upstairs, Steenburgen tries to convince Sarah to give Walker a chance, and downstairs, Father tries to convince Walker to move on and leave Sarah be. Walker explains that he's made a comfortable living for himself, and he can provide for Sarah properly now. Dorif asks the man to play a bit of his specialty music at the piano. Walker doesn't want to play, and Father assumes he can't read music, but is quickly relieved of that assumption. I read music so good, white folks think I'm faking it. Walker turns to the instrument, and both men are impressed with his playing. Upstairs, Sarah can hear Walker. We assume she hears the piano, but he quickly flies up the stairs into her room. So we're just hearing him play, Right. cut over footage of him meeting her. He's surprised to find her scared of him, but they reunite with a big hug and tears. On his way out, Walker invites the rest of the family to their wedding next week. We cut to Evie at a dance audition, being instructed by O'Connor again. Dorif drags her into the hall to complain about her absence at the family meal. We cut to Colehouse Walker driving to his work, and his path is suddenly blocked by a fire truck rolling out of the Emerald Isle 318th Volunteer Fire Company station. The firemen roll a second trailer to block him from behind and pretend they don't notice what they've done. 
He asks how long his path will be blocked, and they remind him to pay the toll, even though this is not a toll road. The fire chief, Willie Conklin, played by Kenneth McMillan, comes out and identifies Walker's Model T. He assumes Walker is someone's driver and is furious to learn the man actually owns this car. When they won't clear the path, he decides to walk the rest of his way. Walker finds a policeman around the corner played by Jeff Daniels and brings the man back to the station. When they return, the Model T has been pushed a block away and smeared with animal feces. Walker demands the men who defiled his car clean it, but they play dumb, and the cop refuses to hold them accountable, instead threatening to arrest Walker for parking his vehicle here illegally, even though he was only parked long enough to go get the cop and bring him back. Walker stands for his principles and refuses to clean the mess himself, instead preferring to submit to arrest. Back at the Steenburgen house, they learn of Walker's arrest, and Father agrees to pay Walker's bail. When they get back to the car together, the windshield is shattered, and it's damaged much worse than when he left it. Father, like the policeman before, thinks he's helping Walker by telling him to fix his own car, but both men are ignoring the problem, and Walker doesn't have time for this. He walks away again with work to do. Later, we see Colehouse Walker speaking with an African-American attorney played by Ted Ross. The man advises Walker not to pick fights with white people and instead spend whatever money he has left on his wedding and a happy family. Walker is insulted and accuses the man of not caring about his own people. The attorney explains that there's lots of poor black people in need of his services and he's not going to waste his time helping a rare wealthy African-American get his fancy car fixed. Everywhere Walker goes, he's pointed in another direction. No one will deal with his claims. Back at the house, Father's trying to convince Sarah that there are no legal means of addressing Walker's situation. He asks her to convince him to drop it. Dorif interrupts the conversation to correct him. Why are you telling her that? That's not what the lawyer said. Father offers to pay for the car to be fixed if they agree to get married and drop the whole thing, but Sarah says that he'll never accept that. The man who destroyed the car has to fix it. Father gives up on any semblance of ethics and informs Sarah that it is now her problem. She can fix it if she wants to, but he's washing his hands of it. That night, Steenburgen hears the baby crying and goes to check on him and finds Sarah gone. In the early morning, we see Sarah walking along a railroad track to the next whistle stop of the vice president's tour of the nation. She sleeps at a train station until the vice president arrives and she is woken by fireworks set off by children in the crowd. She tries to air her husband's grievances directly to the executive branch of the U.S. government, but she's beaten down by police and crushed underfoot by the masses. We get a glimpse of her being carried away unconscious, and we cut back to the home where a doctor reports grievous injuries. Walker arrives home and rushes in to check on her, and she assures him that the president is aware of his troubles. He talks to her about the wedding, and we dissolve to a church, but as the camera tilts down we see it's actually her funeral, and she wears a wedding dress in the coffin. We cut back to the Emerald Isle Volunteer Fire Station, and the phone is ringing. As one of the firemen answers, we see men in trench coats crowding into the bushes across the street from the building. As soon as the firemen are suited up and rolling out the door, they are shot to pieces by the crowd in the shadows. They ask each dying man where Conklin is, but it seems like he wasn't working this shift. We cut right to the police inspector reading a list of demands from the men responsible for these killings. I want the infamous... Fire Chief William Conklin turned over to my justice. I want my automobile returned to me in its original condition. When you are ready to meet my demands, please make it known in the newspapers. If you refuse me, I shall continue to burn firehouses and kill firemen until I have satisfaction. Coal House Walker, Jr. 
Conklin stands there mouth agape like a moron, unable to connect cause and effect and accept responsibility for these killings. He blames the police who released Walker on bail. Conklin suggests they arrest every black person in the neighborhood, but the inspector counters with simply meeting Walker's demands and turning Conklin over. You're a funny man, Inspector. Well, really? It's the easiest way to find him, isn't it? And the cheapest, don't you think? Hey, fellas, be serious, would you, huh? I ain't laughing, you see. Later, the inspector stops by the home to suggest around-the-clock protection for Baby Walker. <laughs> <coughs> Baby Walker. Baby Walker. I feel like the police are too generous here. I don't know. I don't know what to... I don't... It does feel weird to have a movie where the firemen are assholes and the policemen are doing their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? Also, in the... Whatever this is, the 20s or, you know, whatever it is, it, it, feel, it feels out of character for the police to do anything except side completely with this man who was mm -hmm. doing yeah. stuff he shouldn't be doing. Yeah, I don't think they would ever be like, we're going to turn you over to these people. Yeah, because e even when they have Conklin in there, they're asking, how do you know him? How did his car get messed up? Like, like they're accusing him. Yeah. Of... There's no way they would be leaning on him like this. Yeah. Especially when they actually don't have any evidence aside from what this guy says. Like, they would just assume that, that Walker is lying about everything. Later, the inspector stops by the home to suggest around-the-clock protection for the baby that Walker has left behind. Protection, be... protection in quotes. Right. Because they're just, they're just hoping to catch him trying to come and visit the child. Exactly. It becomes clear to Dorif that the police are using the baby as a trap. That night, Dorif goes to the nightclub that previously employed Walker, looking for him. He learns that Walker is no longer their employee, but he offers a business card and a message that police are watching the house. The man insists that Walker does not work here so he can't deliver the message, but eventually understands that Dorif is an ally trying to protect him. Sometime later, Dorif is awoken by a knock at his bedroom door from father. Father presents him with the same business card and asks for an explanation, and he responds matter-of-factly that he's protecting Walker from the police. Dorif promises not to do anything foolish again, but Dad should have been more specific with his request. Yeah, cut <laughs> like, to. <laughs> if I do what you say, that's the foolish thing, so I'm not going to do anything foolish by my own standards of foolishness. We cut right to Dorif blindfolded and presented to Walker wherever he's hiding out. He tells Walker that his son is still at the house under the watchful eye of the inspector and his team. Next, he explains that he works designing fireworks, and the crowd find it amusing until Dorif elaborates and they sober up quick. I design fireworks. That's my job. <laughs> I can make bombs. They realize Dorif is more than just an ally. We cut right to early morning at another firehouse as Dorif and Walker's men toss a bomb into the garage and burn the place down. We hard cut to a crowd of firemen's widows protesting outside Steenburgen's home. Father has to race up the driveway past the ravenous press. Mother and father decide it's time to move away. We cut to the exterior of a library in the city. A black man makes a delivery of a small box outside the gate and returns to his vehicle. The guard man at the door warns him against leaving the package, but when he moves to collect it, he is accosted by two more of Walker's men. One of them is being played by an early appearance of Mr. Samuel L. Jackson. Of course, Jackson has a gun in hand, as he often does, but he doesn't drop any motherfuckers in this scene. <laughs> he, he did earlier, though, I think. He yeah, dropped yeah, a motherfucker. Yeah, he dropped a motherfucker. <laughs> I assume he was one of the 
cloaked guys in uh, the only shooting up the fireman. I recognize him in in a scene before this is when Dorf goes to see them blindfolded. He's in the background. Yeah, but, I, I, yeah. I'm just saying. Otherwise, like, he yeah he could have been the, if he's if in a mask. If it's the same group, uh, it, which it likely is, the same group of guys that attacked the fireman perforated a bunch of firemen. Yeah. <laughs> Another wagon loaded with boxes pulls up to the building, and they are piled into the house. They set off an alarm, breaking open the front doors, and then flood into the building. A team of policemen approach the box left in the street, and Walker's men fire on it from inside the house, causing an explosion that destroys a sewer line and shatters all the windows on the block. We cut from here to a hotel on the beach where mother and father have relocated the family. We get a few quick shots of Evie acting as a damsel in distress for a silent film about pirates. We see that Patinkin has graduated from flipbooks to film directing since we've seen him. IMDb claims that one of these pirates is an uncredited appearance from Jack Nicholson, but none of them look remotely like Nicholson, so I don't believe that. Steenburgen's son wants to speak with the director, and Patinkin suggests that he could spend time with his daughter. In reality, these two children are siblings, the children of graduate director Mike Nichols. Hmm. Steenburgen tries to drag her son away, but Patinkin invites him to hang out and presents him with the gift of a flipbook. He invites the whole family to the film's wrap party later. Then he introduces them to Evelyn and they compliment her beauty. And unclear if they know that she was dating her brother at the time. Oh, or yeah. Previously. That, yeah I don't think that ever comes up because they know. Yeah, I don't think they meets. ever heard a name. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but they said they recognize her from the paper. Right. They're like, oh, you're so beautiful. It's like we recognize you from that court trial where your husband murdered a man and you yeah. claimed to, to be uh, sexually assaulted. Yeah. But I don't think that her brother ever told her who was coming to dinner. Right. And she yeah. never came. So and I don't they never they guessed. Know. Yeah. In the city, the police gear up for a raid of the library that Walker's men have taken over. A local librarian, Mr. Elliot, who works in the occupied building, pushes through the crowd to the commissioner, Waldo, to inform him that the building is a national treasure and should not be destroyed by this violence. He threatens to involve the president if they aren't sufficiently respectful of the property. Waldo invites the librarian to act as a negotiator with the men currently occupying the building. Waldo calls into the building with a megaphone, demanding a conversation with the men inside, and they toss something out at him. Elliot is horrified. My God, that's a covered goblet. What? It's from the 17th century, commissioned by Frederick of Saxony. It's silver inlaid with gold and studded with precious gems. Waldo orders a man to recover the goblet, and inside they find a note with a phone number for the building. Well, Waldo orders a man to go get the goblet and that man orders another man right because they're sure this is going to explode but then they all open it like crowded around it yeah it's like i definitely wouldn't have done that (laughs) the police bust into a home across the street from the library demanding to use the phone the phone rings with a call from the library and rhinelander waldo answers hello this is rhinelander waldo speaking mr waldo i want my car returned in the same condition it was in when my way was blocked in return for the life of my Sarah, I want Fire Chief Willie Conklin turned over to my justice. Is that clear? Walker informs Waldo that any funny business and the whole building will be demolished by installed explosives. Then he hangs up. Somehow, Waldo didn't already know who they were dealing with. That's the crazy buck from New Rochelle, isn't it? Cagney requested the word buck here because the script called for the N-word and he wasn't comfortable saying it, even in character as a police commissioner. Good for him. The last time for the podcast that someone used the word buck as a derogatory for black people, it was dubbed over with the word punk. 
to avoid making the protagonist seem racist. Do you guys recall when that might have been? Did we watch Dirty Harry? We did. <laughs> you don't remember? Well, do you, punk? Waldo orders everyone to work and a small lunch for himself. The car and Conklin are prepared for handing over. Moses Gunn, as Booker T. Washington, is brought in to act as an intermediary with the occupiers. They invite him into the library. Washington lectures Walker for setting back his life's work a generation. He spent decades struggling to convince white people that African Americans are nothing to fear, but they'll only remember what Walker has done and none of the good. Walker explains that he sought justice every way he knew how, and his wife, the mother of his only child, begged directly from the White House for justice. She went to the white man and she begged that I be given the justice entitled to me by law. She died begging for it. Washington makes a futile offer, promising Walker that surrendering now will mean a quick and painless execution. Why even bother coming here if yeah. this is all you have to offer? Literally nothing. Walker agrees to Washington's terms if his demands are met. Washington insists that perpetual revenge will never cure anything, and Walker laughs in his face. But you speak like an angel, Mr. Washington. It's too bad we're living on the earth. You are damned. In the night, the cops position themselves for a raid. A ladder is tilted onto the roof of the library, and as soon as they reach it, a barrage of explosives are detonated above the building. I feel like they had to know this was coming. Yeah, like, for they've, sure. They've been yeah. warned, and then they try it anyways. And they killed. And it's the not guy. like there aren't windows on that side of the building either. Like this, this was just a stupid move altogether. I don't know how they were expected to get in there without getting noticed and yeah. blown up. We cut back to the rap party where Patinkin shares the budgets and profits of each of his previous films. He speaks romantically of the physics of filmmaking, and Steenburgen is enamored. The police interrupt the party to claim possession of Walker's child, clearly intending to threaten harm to the child as a tour to force Walker's hand. How the hell did they find them? I don't know. I mean, they they probably left a forwarding address. They didn't like just leave town forever, right? But still, like you had to, you had. It's night. Yeah. At the at the night at the museum. Maybe they've been looking <laughs> for them for a while. Yeah. Steenburgen refuses to surrender the child without sufficient explanation. Father insists that they hand over the baby, and when she resists, he tells her that he will return to New York without her. The police break into an apartment and kidnap a man from a bed, mistaking him for Conklin, but then the man points out the real Conklin hiding under the bed, because there's <laughs> two men and a woman in this bed yeah. together. Don't understand yeah. who this other man is. Don't know what's right. going on here. Conklin is dragged before Commissioner Waldo in his underwear still, and informed that he'll be used as a bargaining chip with Walker. Because he wants you, Willie. And if you can't make him change his demands, he's going to get you. Conklin tells Walker they can go halves on the damage and claims that Waldo says they'll let everything slide if he just comes out. Walker demands to speak with Waldo and tells the commissioner to send Conklin over, but they never do. No. They never deliver Conklin like they're supposed to. The men comply with Walker's demands, mostly. The room is cleared and Father enters to speak with Commissioner Waldo. They put him on the phone with Walker and he asks if he can come inside the building. There's a really funny line because... Uh, the owner of the house is this older woman who keeps protesting what's going yeah. on. And when they drag Conklin out screaming. Yeah, she's like, can somebody please tell me what's going on or just give me a rough idea? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
when Walker hears Father, though, pleading to, to come into the library, he, he allows it. Father asks if Walker has any idea what might have happened to his brother-in-law, and secondarily, if he can convince Walker to change his mind. Walker makes a new offer. If his car is re-delivered in pristine condition to the front of the library, and Conklin is handed over, and his men are allowed to leave freely, he will surrender to the police. Father returns to Waldo with the offer. Walker's men are furious with him for giving them the opportunity to leave but staying behind himself. They eventually conclude it's all part of a greater plan, like he's, he's scamming them, he's not actually going to split up their team. The commissioner, too, assumes that this is a scheme until Father offers to babysit Walker and assure that the man doesn't sneak out with his men. The room is bewildered by Father's willingness to go back in. Walker, again, approves of the terms. Father asks to use the phone to call his family, but they're no longer in the rooms he calls to and didn't leave any forwarding info, suggesting that Steenburgen has absconded with the baby to protect it. As a betrayal of their agreement, Commissioner Waldo orders each escaping member of Walker's squad to be followed in secret until an order is given. Waldo assumes Walker will be the man in the Model T. That night, the car is parked in place as requested. Walker and his men prepare to leave. The minute you're sure you're safe and you haven't been followed, I want you to call me. Wait a minute. I'm staying. What? What? And the men are mad again, for the same reason, and Walker explains that he'd spend the rest of his life hunted if he doesn't follow through with this plan. You all only life I got left. They're gone. They reluctantly step out to the car, and the cops watch it leave. Walker asks Father how the baby is. Father tries hopelessly to convince Walker that he might survive this ordeal. Like, you know, I feel like maybe you're okay. It's like, yeah. but what about all those white people I killed? Yeah. You think that's going to go over real well? Yeah. You'll, you'll survive this ordeal, but you're not going to survive yeah. any future ordeals. Somehow the car is lost by police in pursuit, and the men call in to assure Walker that they have evaded capture. I would have liked to see an explanation of how they, they, they managed did. this. They did. They yeah. showed it. They Do they? It. So, so what happens is the brother-in-law, Dorf, like took his disguise off and they all hid in the back and tucked down and he just drove by like a regular white man. Okay. So they didn't notice because they were looking for a car full of black okay, men. Okay, I, I missed that moment then. Um, the way I thought this was going to go was that they were all going to split up and that they would leave Dorf in the car and that Dorf would be killed in a hailstorm of bullets because they assumed that he was Walker. Mm. And then the father would realize, oh no, they killed my brother-in-law because... They were they were killing the person who they thought was yeah the most important guy and I just accident. I think this is really clever though because yeah. you know they they use the the fact that the police would automatically assume that no white man would be with them to, yeah, that to makes their sense. advantage. Father thinks it's time for Walker to surrender, even though the fire chief was never delivered. But Walker sends him out first. Father seems convinced that Walker intends to take his own life by blowing up the library, and makes a feeble effort to talk him out of it. But Walker shouts him out of the building. The police make the same conclusion, and sharpshooters are set up all around the building. Walker begs God for an explanation for his internal rage and a solution to this situation. Walker comes outside with his hands up in a spotlight, and the sharpshooters are ordered to fire on him. He collapses on the front steps of the library after a single shot. Father is shaken by the gunshot, and Conklin doesn't give a shit about anything as usual. Steenburgen appears to leave Father sometime later for Patinkin. So, like, Father's inside the house looking through the window, yeah. and she just gets in a car with him and leaves. We see Miss Nesbitt dancing on stage again. 
The music for this last section reminds me a lot of John Bryan's score for Punch Drunk Love from the, like, the harmonium part. Mm. We get another look at Houdini hanging on a line and wrestling himself free of a straitjacket before finishing on Evie and her dance partner again before the credits roll. We also see Harry is released from the asylum. Right, yeah. Which is like, what? <laughs> yeah, what's the sequel going to be? Who's he going to kill now? The story of Colehouse Walker Jr. within the novel is actually based on a much older German novella by Heinrich von Kleist about a man named Michael Kohlhaus who refuses to pay a toll road and sees his horses slaughtered, and so he swears vengeance on the man. That's uh, that's ragtime. I really liked it. Yeah, I thought it was great. It's an incredible cast. Yeah. These I, people are all A number one, classic people. I, I, I had never seen this film before. Yeah. Uh, so going into this film, like I was yeah. like, first of all, I was like, oh man, two and a half hours. This yeah, is, it flies by though. Wait, yeah. was it two and a half hours? It was two yeah. and a half hours. Oh, yeah. I didn't even notice. I was not intending to watch it in one night, you know, which I often don't get through these movies because I'm too tired and I don't watch it through in one night because they're terrible. I accidentally watched the whole thing in one sitting <laughs> right. and I didn't even notice it was yeah. two and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it would have been closer to three hours if they hadn't taken out the whole segment with uh, the feminist activist yeah. who was an actual historical figure yeah. but didn't factor into the the central story of the film so they were like never mind i mean they could have cut the houdini stuff too like yeah it's it's just to set the time period i guess but um, i actually think that they could have tightened the movie up by taking more of that out for sure I, I, a lot of that stuff at the beginning because it, it hinted at like things we expected to come back later and yeah. pay off and there they was don't. there was there, there was a lot of unnecessary setting of the era but still it it flies by well i i don't understand the buttons of of uh elizabeth mcgovern dancing with yeah and who is it she's dancing with at the end yeah yeah, it's it's just a new guy she's just a professional performer now and so it's just her dancing but the film opens with it and i'm not really sure why what this is supposed to be like it's like oh because this is all a film yeah or or the point is just like she just dances. Yeah. That's all she does. She's just dancing through the whole movie. Uh, but uh, no, I thought it was great. Um, it's it's very different storytelling because you're, you're back and forth with these characters a lot. And, uh, you know, like Mandy Pantinkin's character, like you, you follow him for a little while and then it's like, oh, okay. Well, I wonder what that was about. Yeah. <laughs> and then it comes back. It's like, I guess he's a director now. How much time has passed? Yeah. Cause it's like a couple weeks and you already made four movies on the way to like. Th- that's what they did back then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really fast turnaround. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I, I really don't have a concept of how much time has happened because uh, the murder of of White happened and then this woman had to come across the ocean from europe so i think the whole film takes place over like a decade i think it's supposed okay. to be like 1901 to 1911 or something like that yeah at the very end when we see um her driving away um with mandy patinkin the baby is only like a year old right so, and the baby is yeah. born at the beginning so right but, but it's still but that's what i'm saying it's only over the course of a year that these things take place right yeah no it's definitely the timing is odd, which I think is why Dr. O wanted to do it as a 10-part miniseries and, and have it be uh, literally 10 hours long. And even Altman was like, "Yeah, this needs six hours to, to cover everything in the book. Uh, did you read the book? No. Oh, I had questions. <laughs> no, I, did, I did not have time to read the book. Oh, you're terrible you're at this thousands job. Thousands of pages. Yeah. But yeah, it's a big thumbs up for me. 
Yeah, I give it a oh, thumbs yeah, up. Oh, yeah, for sure a thumbs up. I, I'd be curious to to hear an explanation for why Nicholson dropped out so close to production. Um, because, I mean, him and Milos Forman obviously had so much success with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It just seems weird that he would step away so suddenly. But uh, maybe, you know, maybe there was some big important reason that that didn't work out. Uh, Letterbox, what are you thinking, Jessica? Yeah, I have it um, pretty high. I have it at 25. Okay. Um, it's below Amy and above the hand. And I think that the only reason that it wasn't higher was that most of the stuff above it on my list is like either absolutely beloved movie or has something that really stands out within the sure, movie yeah. that's special. And I was like, this is a really great, well-made movie that I liked, but but it doesn't have a there is no a shocking moment. Yeah, there's yeah. no shocking moments in here for me, except yeah. sort of the guy getting shot. But yeah, yeah we see really. it coming. We, for the yeah, whole scene. this guy's crazy and 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 a loose cannon. So I think it makes sense. Richard, what are you thinking? Uh, I have it at twenty-nine. Uh, that puts it below Absence of Malice, but above The Fox and the Hound. Okay, um, I have it at twenty-three, which is just under Time Bandits and just above The Howling. Oh, we had a good little grouping there, yeah, guys. Yeah. We agreed on something. <laughs> what are the chances? Lately, it doesn't seem like uh, No, we've like been we all over been. the place for a while. The director here was Milos Forman. Before this, he directed The Fireman's Ball, Taking Off, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Hair. After this, he directs Amadeus, The People vs. Larry Flint, and Man on the Moon. The novel here came from E.L. Doctorow, who also wrote the books adapted into Daniel in 83, Billy Bathgate, and more recently Wakefield, the Brian Cranston faking his own death and living in the guest house movie. You ever oh, see that? No. Oh, it's good. Uh, the writer of the screenplay here was Michael Weller, who previously wrote Hair for Foreman. The story, like I said before, came from Heinrich von Kleist's uh, novella, which was, uh, Kleist was a German poet from the turn of the 19th century. He's best known for his plays Dosh Kathchen von Heilbronn, The Broken Jug, Amphitryon and Penthesilia. The music here came from Randy Newman. Doesn't sound like a Randy Newman score to me. Yeah. Um, he's mostly emulating ragtime music of, right. of the era. Which which is kind of very Randy Newman-esque. I yeah, guess. that's true. And it's kind of a, its own self. His first score was for Cold Turkey, which we covered with a Patreon episode. He's probably best known for his work in the Toy Story franchise. But he also wrote all the music for Princess and the Frog and The Three Amigos, for which he received his only screenwriting credit. He's also the voice of the singing Bush in The Three Amigos. (laughs) (laughs) Come around the mountain when she comes. The cinematographer here was Miroslav Andracek, who previously lit The Fireman's Ball, Taking Off, and Hair for Foreman. He also lit Slaughterhouse-Five and Oh Lucky Man, Later, he lights The World According to Garp, Silkwood, Awakenings, A League of Their Own, and Riding in Cars with Boys. James Cagney played New York Police Commissioner Rhinelander Waldo. He's a titan of Hollywood's golden era, with acting credits reaching back to the 1910s. He's remembered largely for a series of fascinating gangstery characters from the 20s through the 40s, including films like Public Enemy, Angels with Dirty Faces, and White Heat. He won the Best Actor Oscar for his part in 43's Yankee Doodle Dandy and took nominations for Angels with Dirty Faces and Love Me or Leave Me. He had retired from acting for 20 years before this film's production after Billy Wilder's 1-2-3, and this would be his final film. Cagney was 81, but the real-life Rhinelander Waldo was 32 at the time the film takes place. Uh, uh, he was great. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that that mustache he was sporting. Yeah, the was, little curly handlebars. Yeah, uh, it was wonderful. Yeah. 
It was a stipulation of Cagney's accepting the role that he didn't have to sign a contract and he could quit the job as few as three days from shooting. Doctors warned him against flying to take the part, so he and his wife rode an ocean liner to London for the production. The film was granted an exemption to the ongoing actor strike on account of frail Cagney's return to the screen because they didn't want to deprive the world of the final film from the celebrated actor. Brad Dorif played younger brother. He's a favorite actor of the show, who we've only seen in Heaven's Gate and our Minnesota review of Wise Blood so far. Before this, he was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and he's in Dune, Blue Velvet, Child's Play, where he famously voiced the Chucky doll, Exorcist 3, Deadwood, and a terrific X-Files episode. He's also Wormtongue in the second Lord of the Rings film. Moses Gunn played Booker T. Washington. He's Bumpy Jonas in Shaft, Dr. Pinchot in Firestarter, Chiron in Neverending Story, and we saw him last as one of the patients in the ninth configuration. Elizabeth McGovern played Evelyn Nesbitt. She was nominated for an Academy Award for this part, and she was also Deborah in Once Upon a Time in America. She's probably best known now as Countess of Grantham Cora Crawley on Downton Abbey. We saw her last as Janine in Ordinary People last season. Natasha Kinski from last year's test tried for this part, but couldn't manage the accent. Kenneth McMillan played Willie Conklin. I really love this guy. He's, yeah, he's, he's such great. a great fit for this character, too. Uh, we've seen him so far in Hide in Plain Sight, Little Miss Marker, Carney, Borderline, Eyewitness, True Confessions, Whose Life Is It Anyway, and most recently as Max in Heartbeeps. Later, he shows up in Amadeus, Dune, again with Brad Dorif, Cat's Eye, and Armed and Dangerous, among many others. Pat O'Brien played Delmas. He was Jerry Connolly alongside Cagney in Angels with Dirty Faces and Detective Mulligan in Some Like It Hot. This was also his last film, and he had previously co-starred with Cagney in multiple films of the 30s and 40s. Donald O'Connor played Evelyn's dance instructor. He was Huck Finn and Bo Guest in late 30s films as a child. He played the recurring role of Peter Sterling in a series of Francis the Talking Mule films. He's definitely best known as Cosmo Brown in Singing in the Rain, and in particular his manic Make Em Laugh number. Later, he appears in Pandemonium, Toys as Kenneth Zivo, and his final film, Out to Sea, with Lemon and Mathau in 1997. Cagney insisted on the casting of O'Connor, who was having difficulty finding work at the time. James Olsen played Father. He was Dr. Hall in The Andromeda Strain, The Priest in Amityville 2, and Major Kirby in Commando. Mandy Patinkin played Tata. We saw him last in Night of the Juggler. Later he's in Yentl, Princess Bride, his best-remembered role, Alien Nation, Dick Tracy, and he was also more recently in 96 episodes of Homeland. Howard E. Rollins Jr. played Cole House Walker Jr. This was his first film role, but after this he returned to mostly TV roles that I didn't recognize. He was a school teacher by trade at the time of his being cast in this, and this was his only Oscar-nominated performance. Mary Steenburgen played Mother. Before this she was in Going South and co-starred with her former husband Malcolm McDowell in Time After Time. I'm assuming... Jack Nicholson was her connection to this. Yeah, because they say, were friends, and, and yeah, because going south was yeah. And she, when she took her Oscar for Melvin and Howard, she credited him for basically her career because she said that people wouldn't give her a chance, and that he he was insistent upon her for that film. So far, we've seen her as Linda Demar in Melvin and Howard, and uh, later she shows up in Parenthood, Back to the Future Three, Philadelphia, Clifford, Elf, Step Brothers. Debbie Allen played Sarah. We saw her last as Lydia in Fame. She had a bigger part on the series. She was also Yvonne in Blank Check. She's a prolific director, including Janet Jackson videos, episodes of Fame, Fresh Prince, Quantum Leap, 83 episodes of A Different World, 
The Sinbad Show, Everybody Hates Chris, and Jane the Virgin. Jeffrey Demond played Houdini. We've reviewed all his previous film appearances in Resurrection, First Deadly Sin, and Christmas Evil. Later he shows up in The Hitcher and Darabont Project's The Blob Remake, Shawshank, Green Mile, and The Walking Dead. And supposedly he did all his own stunts in this film. Yeah. I wonder if that means learning how to escape a straitjacket. Yeah, or just being hung, strung up upside down. Yeah. Robert Joy played Henry Thaw. We've seen him now in Atlantic City and Ticket to Heaven. Later, he's in Amityville 3D, Desperately Seeking Susan, Millennium, and Waterworld as Ledger Guy. He's probably best known as Sid Hammerback in 165 episodes of CSI New York. Norman Mailer played Stanford White. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, playwright, and occasional wife-stabber. He wrote and directed Tough Guys Don't Dance and the novel and screenplay for 1982's The Executioner Song. Do you guys recall the last time we mentioned Norman Mailer on the podcast? Someone was quoting his review of her novel. The one with Candace Bergen and what's her face? No, but it, it was it was someone trying to make that point that like, oh, Norman Mailer says my book is so great. It was our sixth episode, if that helps. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, was the one with... Um, she was trying to impress. Yeah. Uh, was the one with um, Michael Douglas? Nope. Ellen Arkin. She was trying to impress Ellen Arkin with her credentials so that oh, she could be Simon? a scientist. Yeah. Oh, that's it. <laughs> Madeline Kahn. Deep, deep cuts here. <laughs> My new book entitled A Comprehensive History of Oral Sex Techniques Illustrated has already been proclaimed a masterpiece by both Norman Mailer and Bess Meyerson and has an advanced printing of 100,000 copies. Who's your publisher? Bruce Boa played Jerome. He was a general in Octopussy. He was a Pogue colonel in Full Metal Jacket. He's probably best known as Rebel Force General Reekin in Empire Strikes Back, which we covered last season. Jeff Daniels played PC O'Donnell. This is his first film. He's back later in Terms of Endearment, Purple Rose of Cairo, Something Wild, Arachnophobia, and perhaps most famously Dumb and Dumber, as well as Will McAvoy on The Newsroom. Fran Drescher played Mama. We've seen her now in Saturday Night Fever, Hollywood Nights, and Gorp. Later, she's in Dr. Detroit, Spinal Tap, UHF, and most famously, The Nanny. And she is currently leading the SAG strike. Uh, she's the president of SAG for the ongoing strike. Right? Well, she's it's resolved, but yes. The SAG strike is also? Oh, well, no. Sorry. No. The writer strike is resolved. Right, yeah. Frankie Faison played gang member number one. This is Frankie's second film credit after Permanent Vacation from last season. Later, he appears in Chud, Exterminator 2, The Money Pit, Maximum Overdrive, Coming to America, Do the Right Thing, Silence of the Lambs, Free Jack, he's the Lloyd in The Stupids, and he's <laughs> Chief Gordon in White Chicks. Hal Galili played Police Captain Number 1. He was Burpleson in Dr. Strangelove. We've seen him this season in Superman 2 and Outland, which I think are both produced by uh, Donner, possibly. Um, in the event of Cagney's untimely passing, Galili was kept on set to take over the role of Rylander Waldo if necessary, but it was not necessary. Alan Gifford played Judge. He's Poole's father in 2001 A Space Odyssey, meaning he gets Landis's favorite line from the film. See you next Wednesday. He's also Mr. Eldridge in Phase 4. Richard Griffiths played Delmas's assistant number one. We've seen him so far in Breaking Glass, Superman 2, The French Lieutenant's Woman, and Chariots of Fire. 
He's Uncle Vernon in the Harry Potter movies, but the first thing I always go to is Dr. Meinheimer slash Earl Hacker in The Naked Gun Two and a Half. <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson played gang member number two. Technically, his first feature film appearance was in Together for Days in 1972, but there are no surviving copies of the film. He supposedly has an uncredited appearance in last season's The Exterminator, but Google yields zero screenshots of it, so I'm going to call BS on that. But he's definitely in this one. Later, he's in Coming to America, Do the Right Thing, The Exorcist 3, Goodfellas, Loaded Weapon 1, Jurassic Park, True Romance, Pulp Fiction, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Phantom Menace, The Incredibles, Snakes on a Plane, and many, many, many more. I think he also holds the record for, like, the cumulative box office... Oh, for it's it's either him or like Frank Welker for just doing animal sound effects in every fucking movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, currently, I would say that Samuel L. Jackson is best known for his work as Shield director Fury and the founder of the Avengers in all of the MCU films. Michael Jeter played special reporter. He was Sheldon in Hair, and this was only his second film credit. Later, he shows up in Soup for One, Z League, The Money Pit, Tango and Cash, The Fisher King, Waterworld. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and Jurassic Park 3. My kids know him best as Mr. Noodles, brother of Mr. Noodles from Sesame Street's Elmo's World segments. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a Mr. Noodle on the show? Was it the uh, brother Noodle? The it was, other Noodle? It was the brother Mr. Noodle. Not Mr. Noodle, but Mr. Noodle. They're both Mr. Noodle. I'm talking about Mr. Noodle. <laughs> Do you remember what we had Mr. Noodle in? The actor's name is Bill Irwin. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. We talked about his incredible mimery was he miming in this role no oh well in in the other film yes the one that we're trying to name he does a lot of like smashing himself down and turning his head weird ways that look uncomfortable oh god Uh, like a cartoon almost like a live action adaptation of a cartoon um a live action adaptation of a cartoon we've done one of those huh also originally set to be directed by Robert Altman, but he stayed oh, on Popeye? for that film. It yes, was Popeye. That is okay. correct. He was Ham Gravy, the ex-boyfriend, the jealous ex-boyfriend. He's also a hell of a dancer. Jeter is. In particular, I recommend checking out his performance at the 1990 Tonys of We'll Take a Glass Together from Grand Hotel because Jeter is doing some incredible work there. I'll put a link on the Twitter post too. Calvin Levels played gang member number three. He was Joe Gipp in Adventures in Babysitting. Bessie Love plays Old Lady T.O.C. She's Harriet Hank Mahoney in The Broadway Melody and Lily Bell in The Hunger. Christopher Malcolm played Police Captain Number 2. He's the dad in Labyrinth. He's Kirk Matunas in Highlander. And we saw him last season as Rogue 2 in Empire Strikes Back and more recently as a prison guard in Superman 2, Baker in Dogs of War, and Vance Parker in Shock Treatment. He's back next week as CLP party member in Reds. Billy J. Mitchell played Delmas's assistant number two, not to be confused with <laughs> Billy J. Mitchell Jr., the disgraced former King of Kong. Uh, he plays Martin in Top Secret. He's Admiral Farrell in Goldeneye and Captain Peterson in Never Say Never Again. Jenny Nichols played the little girl and Max Nichols played the little boy. They are the daughter and son of director Mike Nichols. And there was a rule at the time that directors had to name their sons Max. So Mike Nichols, Steven Spielberg, Mel Brooks, and John Landis all complied. <laughs> Zach Norman played Gent Number 2, Manager. He was Harry Munchak in Cadillac Man and Ira in Romancing the Stone. Ted Ross played the Black Lawyer. We just had him as the Cowardly Lion in our review of The Wiz, 
And before that, we saw him as Bitterman in Arthur, a role he reprised for the sequel. He's the one trying to impress Miss Nesbitt. Dorsey Wright played gang member number four. He was Cleon in The Warriors and Hud in Hair Before This. Harry Ditson played County Clerk. He was Harold Clevish in Improper Channels earlier this season, and he's back next week also for Reds. We've also seen him as a convict in Superman 2, and he's Duquois, a member of the Revolution in Zucker Abram Zucker classic Top Secret. Robert Dorning played Gent with Stanford White. He's a dancer in The Red Shoes and Philip Fairweather in Cul-de-Sac. George Harris played band leader at the Clef Club, not to be confused with George Harrison or George Me Harris. He was Katanga in Raiders, Kingsley Shacklebolt in the Harry Potter universe, and he's Morty in Layer Cake. Barry Denon played stage manager. He's Pontius Pilate in Jesus Christ Superstar, Chamberlain in The Dark Crystal, and we just saw him fairly recently as Erwin Lapsey, president of Lapsey Auto, in Shock Treatment. Before that, he was also Watson in The Shining. Andreas Katsoulis played policeman number three. He's probably best known as Gakar on Babylon 5. Is that how you pronounce it? Gakar? I did I'm, not. I tried. Watch Babylon. He's five. the guy who, like, is Peter Jurisic's rival that they're always, like, arguing with each other. Uh, but he's also Roughshod in Hot Shots Part 2 and The One Armed Man in the 1993 right. Fugitive. Al Matthews played the Mater D. He was Sergeant Apone in Aliens, General Tudor in Fifth Element, and we've seen him so far in Rough Cut and The Final Conflict. Stuart Milligan played Marksman. I think that's the guy who ends up shooting Walker. Uh, he's Walters in Outland, which I think is also one of the assassins sent after the protagonist. Richard Oldfield played Stock Reporter. He's Rogue Four in Empire. Ethan Phillips played Guard at Family House. This is his first film. He's best known as Neelix yeah, in Star say, Trek Voyager. Now, Star Trek. <laughs> the Star yeah, Trek. I got I those ones. I recognize <laughs> Neelix right away. He also showed up more recently as a judge in Better Call Saul. John Ratzenberger played a policeman. He's in Cheers. He's in all the Pixar movies. We've had him in Empire Strikes Back, Motel Hell, and Outland so far. He's back for Reds next week. And next season, he's Rusty in Battle Truck. Tony Sebald played stock reporter. He was the fake president in a scene in Superman 2, the guy pretending to be the president uh, when Zod shows up in the Oval Office. Edward Wiley plays Conductor. He was Garfield in Highlander, and we saw him earlier this season as Fitch in Chariots of Fire. Kathy Monroe played Champagne Dancer. She was Zuckus and Weo Kettle in Empire Strikes Back. She's a hotel worker in The Shining, and she's back right around the corner in Octopussy. Chris Parsons played Lower Class Workman. He's Forlom, K-3PO and a Stormtrooper in Empire, uncredited for all three. He also goes uncredited as a dinner guest in The Shining, as a Nazi in Raiders, as a skier in For Your Eyes Only, and as a local islander in Eye of the Needle. But there's only like four islanders yeah. in Eye of the Needle, and I'm pretty sure they're all credited. So, Billy Perkins played Stroller uncredited. She was Iris's friend in Taxi Driver. And Judy Trott played a chorus girl uncredited, and she was John Hurt's girlfriend in Heaven's Gate last season. Those are all the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything for Ragtime. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, Kyle Olson, and he wanted us to wish a happy birthday to his wife, Christina Dragonetti, who is celebrating her birthday on the 30th, just two days after this posts. So happy birthday to you, Christina. And thank you so much, Kyle, for joining the team. As a $5 patron of the show, Kyle now has access to 44 full-size 70s reviews and a hand in choosing next month's film. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Reds, 
which IMDb describes like so. A radical American journalist becomes involved with the communist revolution in Russia and hopes to bring its spirit and idealism to the United States. We leave you now with the trailer for Reds. If you want to have freedom, you got to go where the freedom is, don't you? You're going to go to waste in Portland. Come to New York. What as? Huh? What as? What do you mean, what as? What as? Your girlfriend? What does that mean? What as? Your girlfriend, your mistress, your paramour, your concubine? Just tell me what as. It's nearly Thanksgiving. Uh, why don't you come as a turkey? I don't want to play in your yard. I don't like you anymore. What would you think if I asked you to do something that might seem a little selfish? Well, <laughs> I, 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 I think you should. Good, good, because I'd like you to take a look at my work and tell me what you think. You'll be sorry when you see me sliding down our cellar door. That you're going to send American boys across that ocean? I say you tell Mr. Morgan and Mr. DuPont and Mr. Rockefeller to get over there and do some of the fighting. You can holler down our rain barrel. You can climb our apple tree. I can't work around you. You tell me why you're doing this. I'm not, I'm not taken seriously when you're around. When I'm around, you're not taken seriously. Oh, God, this is not good. I don't want to play in your yard if you won't be good to me. I'd like to see you with your pants off, Mr. Reed. Oh, what do you think I should be? The center of attention. Jack, you said you'd be back Tuesday. What difference does it make? What do you think I've been doing? Running around listening to the sound of my own voice? How do I know whose voice you've been listening to? Obviously, you like it a lot better than mine. Ah. Uh, if you were mine, I wouldn't share you with anybody or anything. There's something that I have to tell you. You don't have to tell me anything. No. No. You want to get married? Does this mean that we have to cheat, or is this a free and independent marriage? You're a lying Irish whore from Portland, and you use me to get Jack Reed to marry you. What else should I care that you slept with somebody else? Do you think I haven't? Who? What do you mean, who? Who was it? Who was what? Jack dreams that he can hustle the American working man, whose one dream is to be rich enough not to have to work, into a revolution led by his party. Is the Socialist Party prepared to take a position on the draft or not? And you dream that if you discuss the revolution with a man before you go to bed with him, it'll be missionary work rather than sex. You're not Where are you going? Get out! You're not going any... Officer, these men have the legal right to assemble. What the hell are you doing? Me? I write. You write? Uh-uh. You wrong. I'd rather be with a fighter who wants to change the world than a critic who wants to mourn it. Well, the place to be now is Russia. You don't have to tell me what's happening in Russia. I read the papers. Well, come with me. Thank <laughs> you.